This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 10, for broadcast on the 7th of February, 2018. Coming up on Space Time, new evidence that our galaxy practices cannibalism, all systems go for the maiden flight of the Falcon Heavy, and scientists discover how black holes regulate star formation in massive galaxies. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered evidence confirming that the outer halo of the Milky Way contains stars stolen from neighbouring galaxies. The findings, reported in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, supports the idea of galactic cannibalism, in which big galaxies grow bigger by merging or by consuming smaller galaxies. The Milky Way is currently consuming the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, and it's also taking streams of stars of two other satellite galaxies, the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds. And in around 3.7 billion years from now, give or take a few million years, the Milky Way itself will be consumed by an even bigger galaxy, Andromeda. Most of the information we have about the Milky Way's stellar halo comes from the halo's inner region, which astronomers can observe reasonably close to our solar neighbourhood. Now, scientists have for the first time studied the chemical properties of the external regions of the halo. They used high-resolution spectroscopy to study the chemical composition of a sample of 28 red giants at large distances from the Sun. Red giants are bloated older stars that have reached the end of their time on the main sequence and are no longer burning hydrogen in their cores. Spectroscopic analysis involves separating the light from stars into different wavelengths or frequencies in order to obtain information about the star's chemical composition. These chemical properties act like signatures, providing clues about where the star was born. The authors found that the outer halo stars of the Milky Way have very different chemical compositions compared to stars in the inner regions of the galactic halo. These differences match the chemical composition of stars from nearby satellite galaxies, such as the Sagittarius Dwarf and the Large Magellanic Cloud. The authors say these signatures are telling them that the external regions of the stellar halo may well contain remains of one or more massive dwarf galaxies which have been devoured by the Milky Way. Stellar halos are a common component of galaxies like the Milky Way. Current hypotheses explaining the formation and structure of galaxies in the universe predict that stellar halos, and in particular their outer regions, consist mainly of stellar components from destroyed smaller galaxies. In order to reach their conclusions, the authors used about 100 hours of telescope observing time using both northern and southern hemisphere observatories. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. SpaceX is about to launch its largest and most powerful rocket ever, the Falcon Heavy. The new 70-metre-tall launch vehicle combines three Falcon 9 core stages mounted side-by-side, side, giving it the power to lift almost 64 tonnes into low Earth orbit, 24 tonnes into geostationary transfer orbit, 18 tonnes into translunar orbit, and more than 16 tonnes for missions to Mars. The new rocket's maiden flight will blast off from the Kennedy Space Center's launch pad 39A at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. That's the same historic pad which, together with its sister pad 39B, were built to launch the mighty Saturn V rocket and later the space shuttles. 
The Falcon Heavy's first flight will be a demonstration mission designed to validate the vehicle's flight profile and launch technologies. Instead of the usual dummy payload, occasionally packed with scientific monitoring equipment, SpaceX boss Elon Musk is sending his own midnight cherry-coloured Tesla Roadster. Musk says the Falcon Heavy's destination will be deep space on an Earth-to-Mars Holloman transfer orbit. Holloman transfer orbits have a heliocentric perigee at 150 million kilometres, the radius of Earth's orbit around the Sun. And they have a heliocentric apogee of 228 million kilometres, equating to the radius of Mars's orbit around the Sun. What all this means is that there'll be a red two-seater electric sports car floating perpetually between the orbits of Mars and Earth, something new for future missions to look out for over the next few billion years. Musk originally wanted to place the little sports car on the Martian surface, but international planetary protection rules prevented SpaceX from sending the car to Mars. So placing it in orbit at the same distance as Mars is the next best thing. SpaceX will also attempt to land all three first stages of the rocket. Two on landing zones at Cape Canaveral, with the third on the drone ship Of Course I Still Love You, which will be positioned downrange in the North Atlantic Ocean. The Falcon Heavy was designed from the onset to carry humans into space, providing the option of flying manned missions to the Moon or Mars independently of NASA's SLS and Orion. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Now, Fred, we're going to talk about Elon Musk. This bloke amazes me. He's trying to make the world a better place through renewable energies and super batteries and all that sort of stuff, Uh, although the people of Adelaide are still trying to figure out what this button does. Um, But uh, right now he's gearing up for a big launch that's going to happen next week and he's using his uh, his Falcon Heavy rocket and he's sending up something even a bit more bizarre than a disco ball. What's he up to? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're quite right. If you're listening to this after February the 6th, you might get a different uh, take on the story. But it's a very exciting venture. So um, his SpaceX company will uh, test launch what is now the world's most powerful rocket, the Falcon Heavy, uh, which has the extraordinary capability of being able to put 62 tonnes into low Earth orbit. That is it's almost the size of a railway locomotive. Is that? It's extra, extraordinary uh, capability. But, of course, um, uh, Elon Musk's sights are firmly fixed on the planet Mars because mm. he has plans to get rockets to Mars. Um, I have to say that whilst I'm a very big fan of Elon's, I actually think some of this uh, hype is very optimistic. There are huge technical problems in getting people to Mars, which we really aren't very near to solving at the moment. Notwithstanding that, though, the Falcon Heavy, when it comes into being um, uh, and and, uh, comes into operational service, as you could, could perhaps say, will be an amazing addition to the world's store of uh, of you know rocket launch vehicles because of its capabilities so it consists of three of his falcon rockets strapped together in a row Good uh, not end to end but side by side um, each one of those has nine rocket engines so it's a 27 rocket uh, spacecraft it's 27 rocket motor spacecraft that in itself brings interesting problems because um, uh, when you fire all these things together there are all kinds of vibrational patterns that get set up and if you're not careful it tears your spacecraft to pieces as the russians found out with their n1 program back in the 1960s is is that different from harmonic vibration that tears planes apart it's that sort of thing that's right 
Um, yeah, the, the N1 rocket had 30 engines. So, um, <laughs> SpaceX is not far. They were asking for trouble. They really That's were. right. It's not far short of that. So, um, but uh, all the signs are good. I mean, Falcon, the Falcon rockets with their nine, nine motor cluster are already uh, doing brilliantly in terms of putting things into orbit. They're providing commercial services to NASA. And of course, the key thing about them, and this is really where I think everybody has to take their hat off to Elon Musk. They've mastered the technique of bringing the rockets back down to Earth, mm. uh, landing them either on a pad at uh, Cape Canaveral or on the floating drone barge that um, uh, that uh, uh, Elon Musk has got uh, in, sitting in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it's it's got a lovely name, has this barge. If I remember rightly, it's called Of Course We Still Love You, uh, which is a great way of welcoming <laughs> back your, your spent... Um, you know, I've, I've seen footage of those rockets coming back down on that on that barge, and it, it still doesn't quite look real. It, it's like you're watching an image from a science fiction it, it movie is, or, right. or, or some kind of CGI effect, but it's absolutely real. It just looks so spectacular. Uh, indeed, and and it uh, you know it, it is it's a spe- it's a spectacular achievement, especially when you think this rocket pl- or this landing platform is pitching up and down by uh, you know ten meters or something as in the Atlantic swell. Mm. But they've done a great job with that, and uh, the success rate has now improved. Uh, it started off pretty feebly, but it's now pretty good. Um, so that's a bit uh, like the Australian cricket team, but we won't go there. <laughs> we won't go there either. So that's <laughs> right. Um, now, so the, the the amazing thing is that uh, on on Monday on um, Tuesday, when uh, when this rocket test launch will take place, uh, Elon is planning to bring all three of those uh, rocket uh, boosters back to Earth. Wow. Uh, one of them, I think, the central core will land on the on the Atlantic uh, floating platform, and the other two will land on land on on the ground. Yeah. That's very very ambitious. Uh, and I think he's half expecting it to end in tears. But uh, what he has done to put his money where his mouth is, is sent this extraordinary payload um, up with yeah, the rocket. This is normally, like he's made a personal bet against himself. Itself, that's right. It's almost like that. That's right. So normally when you test a new rocket, um, he, he, the, fa- the payload bay is filled with blocks of concrete or something mm. like that, just useless ballast. But he's put his own Tesla Roadster into the payload bay. And not only is it going up into space, it's actually going to Mars because he's putting it into an orbit which will intercept the orbit of Mars. And Seriously? He, yeah, he expects it to uh, be in that orbit for about a billion years unless he gets there first and brings it down onto the surface. You're uh, kidding me. Yeah, it's, it's going to Mars. That's the that's the deal. Yeah, you know, I'm just looking at an image of the vehicle right now. Oh my yeah. gosh! It's a, a lovely cherry red Tesla Roadster. I've been in one of these cars. It's uh, incredible. I have a friend who's got one, and they are stunningly spectacular. Um, if I had one, I certainly wouldn't be sending it to Mars, but uh, maybe if you own the company that makes them, you're in an, uh, an unusually privileged position. At least so, he, he picked the right colour. Yes, he did. I think that's his favourite. And, and we are, now let's get serious. We are talking about a $200,000 vehicle. Yes, that's right. U.S. Nothing really compared with the cost of the launch, but that's all right. Look, it's a, I think it's a really great story. I wish him well with the project because I think this is very much putting 
you know, putting space within reach of so many different groups of, uh, of, of endeavors, not only scientific and commercial, but maybe, maybe tourism as well. Who knows? That's Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory speaking with Andrew Duckley on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash spacetimewithstuartgary. study has shown how supermassive black holes control star formation rates inside galaxies. For years, astronomers have noticed a direct relationship between the size of a galaxy and the mass of the supermassive black hole at its centre. But the machinations of exactly how all this works has been somewhat of a mystery. Now, a report in the journal Nature has provided the first direct observational evidence that the mass of the central black hole affects the formation of new stars throughout the galaxy's lifetime. The centres of massive galaxies are among the most exotic regions in the universe. They each harbour a supermassive black hole, each with millions to billions of times the mass of our Sun. Black holes are giant gravity wells, sucking in anything that gets too close. As matter falls into a black hole, it's crushed, stretched and torn apart through a process called spaghettification, releasing huge amounts of energy before finally passing the black hole's event horizon a sort of point of no return after which matter falls forever towards the singularity, a place of infinite density and zero volume beyond our understanding of physics. The energy that's released during a black hole feeding frenzy, together with bits of matter that manage to escape being consumed by the black hole, is all expelled in the form of high-velocity relativistic jets which slam into the surrounding interstellar medium, producing violent shocks. For some time, it's been thought that all of this emission of radiation and particles and the growth of the black hole itself should influence the way in which these galaxies form stars, making star formation more difficult. For some time, it's been hypothesised that all of this emission of radiation and particles and the black hole itself should influence the way in which these galaxies form stars by making star formation more difficult. This influence allows astronomers to explain the observed relationship between the mass of the central black hole and the total stellar mass of the galaxy. In fact, without this feedback loop, computer simulations of the formation and evolution of massive galaxies fail completely, both in reproducing their properties and the number of galaxies predicted with a given mass. However, until now, there's been no actual observational evidence to back up this hypothesis. In this new study, scientists analysed spectra from the centres of 74 galaxies using data from the Hobby Eberly Telescope Massive Galaxy Survey. The spectra allowed the authors to work out the chemical composition of stars in the galaxy. As galaxies age, their stellar composition changes. And this allowed scientists to determine how the rate of star formation changed during the galaxy's lifetime. The authors compared the observed spectra with what was predicted by models of stellar evolution. And the results allowed scientists to determine how many stars of different ages there are in each of the observed galaxies, and then compare that with the mass of the central black holes. The findings confirm that supermassive black holes can affect the formation of stars throughout the lifetime of a galaxy, and that this effect does depend on the black hole's mass. 
Now, according to this analysis, galaxies with more massive black holes at their centres show a faster rate of initial star formation, which then gives rise to a more massive black hole, which then slows down that rate of star formation in the galaxy. In fact, the authors found that the galaxies with the most massive black holes at their centres tend to form the major part of their masses, some 95%, up to 4 billion years before the galaxies with the least massive central black holes. But at the same time, the more recent star formation, during, say, the last 700 million years, is actually greater for galaxies with less massive black holes. The fact that the mass of these black holes is related to the quantity of matter and energy emitted during their active phase, taken together with the new results, confirms the scenario previously envisaged. See, to form stars efficiently, cold molecular gas and dust are needed. However, the energy in the particles emitted by a supermassive black hole as it feeds at the centre of a galaxy would tend to heat up the surrounding interstellar medium, thereby reducing star formation rates. And the larger a black hole is, the more energy it generates as it feeds, and so the more difficult it will be for a galaxy to form new stars. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. Scientists have identified biological markers in blood plasma which could provide an early warning of Alzheimer's disease. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, focused on the extent of protein amyloid beta buildup in the brain, an early sign of Alzheimer's. The new techniques designed to detect short protein fragments known as peptides found in blood which are associated with amyloid beta buildup. The study was based on tests involving two groups of patients, 252 Australians and 121 Japanese. Both groups included a mix of cognitively normal individuals, individuals with mild memory and cognitive impairments, and patients with Alzheimer's disease. Scientists found that the ratios of the different amyloid beta-associated peptide fragments and a composite score can be used to accurately predict the level of amyloid beta buildup in an individual's brain. Although the work's still at an early stage, it could eventually lead to a blood test for Alzheimer's, replacing the costly and inconvenient brain scans and spinal fluid tests currently used. A new study has confirmed what people around the world have already seen. Polar bears are slowly starving to death because the declining sea ice has reduced their seal hunting grounds. The findings reported in the journal Science shows that the bears are going hungry and dying because of human-induced climate change. Researchers tracked nine polar bears, finding many bears spent more energy hunting than what they got back from catching their dinner. In fact, four of the bears being tracked over an 8 to 11 day period lost some 10% or more of their body mass, with an average loss of 1% per day. That's four times the rate of weight loss observed in fasting polar bears on land. The scientists warned that further sea ice melt from climate change will only put more strain on foraging bears. A new study has raised questions about the effectiveness of taking fish oil capsules for heart health. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, contradicts advice from the Heart Foundation suggesting that omega-3 fatty acids contained in the capsules can help prevent heart problems. Researchers reached their conclusions by looking at data from 10 long-term randomised trials covering some 78,000 participants. Amazingly, they found that taking omega-3 supplements had absolutely no benefit for heart health. 
Previous studies had already suggested that taking between one and three tablets of fish oils a day had no effect on lipid levels, no effect on coagulation or platelet function, and the fish oils actually lose potency through natural oxygenation within just a few months of opening the cap. Early hominid tools discovered in southern India suggest that our human ancestors may have migrated out of Africa much earlier than previously thought. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, suggest that early humans were using modern stone tools some 385,000 years ago, around the same time this Middle Paleolithic culture was developing in Africa and Europe. This is much earlier than estimates for when humans were thought to have left Africa, which the researchers say means these migrations must have happened a lot earlier than previously thought. The Australian National University Social Research Centre has compiled a list of events they say has shaped the nation the most. The study is the first of its kind. It asked some 2,000 Australians aged 18 to 93 to nominate the events in their lifetime which they felt had the greatest impact on the country. And given the timing of the survey, it wasn't too surprising to find same-sex marriage at the top of the list, with some 30% of respondents placing it first. Just behind same-sex marriage were the September 11 attacks by Islamic terrorists, which came in second with 27%. Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology to the Stolen Generation shared third place on 13% with the Port Arthur Massacre. The year 2000 Sydney Olympic Games and the dismissal of the Whitlam Labor government came in next at 12% each. They were closely followed by the Vietnam War on 11%, with America's Apollo 11 moon landing and the arrival of the internet both scoring 9% each. The 2008 global financial crisis, the election of Juliet Gillard as Australia's first female Prime Minister and the Australia to America's Cup victory scored 8% each. Of course, generational differences played a big part in the survey, with older people having experienced far more events. As expected, those born in 1945 or earlier ranked the Second World War as the most significant event, with 44%. While those born after 1945, the so-called baby boomers, had the Vietnam War first with 28%, the Whitlam dismissal second on 27%, followed by same-sex marriage and then the moon landing in fourth place. As for Generation X, they ranked the September 11 Islamic terrorist attacks first with 35%, while Generation Z and the Millennials also ranked 9-11 highly. Interestingly, there were some key gender and political differences, with same-sex marriage being more popular among females than those voting left of the political divide, while September 11 was more commonly nominated by males and those voting to the right of the political divide. And time now for a sceptic's guide to energy medicine. Whether it's healing crystals, pyramid power or enchanted pink unicorns, energy medicine has become big business, allowing the gullible to be quickly parted from their money. Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics, is a regular contributor to the space-time program, and he joins us now to provide a skeptics guide to energy medicine. Energy medicine is a name given to an assorted bunch of healing modalities, and I use the word healing with a with a boulder of salt, but that, that's the claim. Um, and those modalities are supposed to either use energy to heal a patient or manipulate the patient's energy to achieve a result. So examples of energy medicine would be Reiki. What is Reiki? Reiki basically says that the body has a flow of energy through it, and uh, every person has a flow of energy, and they're breaking master 
is able to use their own energy to manipulate the patient's energy without actually touching them. There's all kinds of claims, but the usual case is simply by hovering their hands above the patient's body, very often above the area that is supposed to be unwell. You know, for example, if there's a muscle that's in pain, then you would hover, put the hands just above the muscle that's in pain or the head if there's a headache or if there's cancer, then they would put it above where the cancer is. So the idea is that the Reiki master's energy manipulates the patient's energy. Uh, there's other forms. There's therapeutic touch, which is similar, but with slight touch very often, although not always. It all sounds a, a, a little bit like you're almost talking about chiropractors. Well, chiropractic is, a lot of people think about it as back cracking and a lot of physical manipulation, but well, it's very core. Like yeah. It's very core. Chiropractic is, in fact, energy medicine because the whole idea is that there is life force that flows through the skull into the spine and then disperses into the body through the spinal column. And uh, subluxations in the spine are what interferes with that flow of energy. And what chiropractors do is manipulate the spine in order to release the flow of energy and allow it to get to the places in the body that it needs to happen. It's important to point out that there's an, a religious element to it. It comes from God, although chiropractors would not usually mention that, but that's the original concept of chiropractic. The life force doesn't exist, the subluxations don't exist, and the manipulation, obviously, it cannot release something that does not exist. So that shows you, uh, tells you a lot about chiropractic. That gets pretty dangerous then, doesn't it, when people are missing out on proper medical treatment because of this? That, that is usually the risk with all of alternative medicine, then you might miss out on, on proper evidence-based treatment. Uh, I'd like to point out that something we've spoken about recently, acupuncture is also energy medicine because the whole idea about acupuncture is that it manipulates the flow of chi through the body along the meridian lines. And those meridian lines do not exist and the chi does not exist, or at least there's no evidence that it exists. So the whole premise of behind acupuncture is false. The fact that acupuncture may have some effects due to the physical aspects of it has nothing to do with that premise of chi and meridians. What are some of the other types of energy medicine? Yeah, so crystal healing is a form of, uh, of energy medicine which assumes that various crystals which, as we, we know, are basically just um, they're chemical. Rocks. Chem they're rocks. <laughs> they have uh, some energy in them, and they uh, somehow affect our body. Well, it is actually true for some rocks. Uranium. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but that, when you talk about something like quartz, it's really pretty. And, and you know, if you rub pressure on quartz, it will go then off. It, becomes, it will glow orange. It glow, glows orange, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you hit two crystals of quartz against each other, they will spark, and they will emit orange light. Light. Well, we see earthquake lightning, which is thought to come from quartz. Absolutely. So we know that they exist, but the crystal itself does not actually emit any energy and definitely does not have any healing properties. Uh, but there's also distance healing. There's a lot of people who basically can either pray for you or, or perform Reiki on you or whatever it is over the phone or over the internet. And people actually spend a lot of money on these kind of, um, uh, well, how should I, what's the right word for this? Scam is usually a good word for that sort of word. So the thing is that what all of these have in common is that they don't really use energy. They've borrowed the word. Perhaps stole is a better description of what they did. But the energy that they supposedly use or manipulate is undetectable and in all probability does not exist. By contrast, energy, real energy, is often used in real medicine, like radiotherapy for, for cancer, like heat for muscle pain. Heat is energy. Phototherapy for jaundice in newborns, electrical stimulation treatments for a variety of brain conditions, including 
epilepsy, Parkinson's, and severe antidepressant-resistant depression. This form of energy is real, it's detectable and measurable, and very often, or most often, is used after scientific studies show that it works and that it is safe. Uh, the thing is that the energy in energy medicine is not real. And we know that it is not real, not just because we can't detect it. Proponents of energy medicine would have you believe that it's the closed-mindedness of scientists and the lack of good equipment that prevents us from being from detecting uh, this, this energy. No, it's the but, scientific method but, that well, from detecting The thing energy. is, like everything else in science, we don't go finding out how something works before we are sure that it works in the first place. And the studies in energy medicine follow the same pattern that we see in most of alternatives to medicine. Some small, poor quality studies that show positive results, but many others that don't. And importantly, the better the studies, the weaker the effect. And good studies don't show any effect at all. So forget about whether there is energy or there isn't energy. Do these treatments work? Does Reiki work? Does therapeutic touch work? Does chiropractic and acupuncture and crystal healing, all of these, do these things work? And the evidence is very much that they do not work. Uh, with chiropractic, there is very small evidence that it, um, that it has some effect, but that's due to the physical manipulation, not because of the energy. But I want to point out that there is something that energy medicine does particularly well, and that is the use of scientific sounding jargon in a way that departs completely from the real meaning of words. Examples include not understanding that energy is simply work, usually referring to it as something that flows. Energy doesn't flow. There are things that carry energy that flow, perhaps, but energy doesn't flow. They often use the word frequency as if frequency is an object. For example, they say that they imbue the body with frequency or they imbue certain you know, bracelets with, with frequencies. Frequencies are not a thing. Frequencies are a description or a property. They talk about vibrations without knowing or being able to elaborate, at least, what is vibrating and how. And, of course, their favorite word of wool merchants everywhere, quantum. Oh. Oh, everything's it's, quantum. Uh, yes, yeah. everything is quantum. It's a great way to explain something that you can't really explain. You say, well, that's the oh, thing. it's quantum. It's used to indicate pretty much anything that is weird or inexplicable to them or to their victims. Oh, I mean patients. That's Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio, and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary. At Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 